This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It's not that a suspension to Ryan Strome is going to make Cal Connor's knee any better, and he's undergoing an MRI, I believe, in San Jose today to determine the extent of the injuries, but nonetheless... Would have made the Winnipeg Jets feel a lot better if Ryan Strom had gotten something other than just a game ejection for what happened yesterday. Uh, Sean Reynolds joins me now. Covers the Winnipeg Jets for us on Sportsnet. Uh, big win last night, Sean, over the Anaheim Ducks. A gutsy win uh, by the Winnipeg Jets. But, you know, the headline story today is Cal Connor and the knee. How did you see that uh, that play last night? Well, like, let's make one thing clear. Ryan Strom's not the kind of player that has a history or, or a reputation for doing yeah. these kind of things. But, um, I mean, and it is not, you know, I, it's not like I see a shark diving out to bite into the chum, right? But I do see a lean. I do see him stick the knee out. I, I do see it's one of these situations that happen fast on the ice and, Maybe he's just trying to get a piece of them. Uh, but to me, it's a dangerous play. I was very surprised that there was uh, that there's not going to be supplemental di- um, um, discipline. I would have expected discipline. it in this situation here. Uh, and again, you you nailed it. I mean, there's a fan base here and the Jets themselves that are probably very upset that this didn't happen. But you're right. In the end, uh, Kyle Connor is this kind of player that the Jets kind of, you don't have to worry about him. He's going to show up and he's going to score his goals. He's probably going to lead your team in scoring if he's not. He's going to finish second in scoring on the team. But the thing about him is he's been so reliable because he hasn't really been injured over the years. So life with an, a Winnipeg Jets life with an injured Kyle Connor is not something they've had to ponder very often, which has a lot mm. of people in Winnipeg Jets land uncomfortable today. Let me pick up on something you said there because it's really interesting too because I thought the same thing when I saw the play yesterday. Um, like you're right. Kyle Connor is not someone that has absorbed a lot of punishment in the NHL. He's a really smart player, and he's a highly skilled player. He's also a really smart player. That is a dangerous cut. Like, we talk a lot about players, you know, not protecting themselves around the boards, and we saw a lot of hits from behind this weekend specifically. But, you know, Kyle Connor is always someone that, A, has a tremendous shot. We know that. But, two, I've always admired the way that he's – not gone out of his way to not put himself in harm's way, but he's smart and he doesn't put himself in situations where he's going to get hurt. Like, did this one kind of feel weird to you? Like, do we see Kyle Connor putting himself in these danger positions? You're closer to it. You watch it a lot more than I do. Like, is it a, is it a play that we're used to seeing from Kyle Connor? Yeah, I, I think that there's an understanding with this league and its star players that they get to make that move and go to the net. They don't have to worry about those things. And you bring up a really, really good point about like players who seem to, I mean, players who don't get injured, there's a reason why. It's self-preservation for the most part. And I I, I don't say this to say like the, the average hockey fan, I'm not trying to talk down. Like they don't get it. I didn't get it. I played hockey for years and then I started having these conversations. Mark Scheifele is a guy who told me that his work with Adam Oates, one of the first things that Adam Oates does with his yep. clients is teaches them not to get injured. And even when he heard that from him, it was like, well, how do you do that? And it's like, well, there's this, you know, body position, all these different kind of things you do, the certain kind of awareness. You don't get to be an 80 point producer a year if you don't play 80 games, typically, is, you know, kind of the mindset that he comes with. So th- these players, and Kyle Connor is one of them, he, A, he, he's a clean player, right? Because he won the Lady Bing a couple of years ago. He doesn't take a lot of penalties, yeah. but B, he's a guy who is fast. He's able to stay above the phrase, able to kind of dash in, dash out of danger when it takes it. So Kyle Connor isn't one of these guys who's putting himself in a bad position. And I don't see this as being that. I see this as being, you know, if someone goes out and decides that they're going to stick a knee out on you when you're going by, there's nothing you're going to do about that. So this is one of these situations where NHL players have to trust each other. Uh, and that trust was, was violated again in this situation. Let me make it clear. And the language sounds harsh. I don't see Ryan Strom as this kind of player. I don't think in that moment he was thinking, I'm going to take Kyle Connor out in this situation. I think it's, you know, yeah. I hope it doesn't sound like a pun. It's a knee-jerk reaction. What happens in this situation? It's unfortunate the way it turns out. Probably because people know this about Ryan Strom is one reason why he's not going to be suspended today. I, I still think it's a suspendable play. 
Can I um, let, me, let me tell you a quick story about uh, Adam Oates. I'm, I'm glad you brought him up, and he works with a lot of NHLers, and most notably for Winnipeg Jets fans, uh, Mark Shifley. Uh, this would have been two years ago. Um, was driving actually to go to it was an event for Aaron Ambrose from the Canadian national women's team it was a gold medal uh, celebration at her old rank she played with uh, with Georgina before YSC and it was a big like the, the mayor was there the whole town had come out and I was talking to Adam as I was driving up and the night before there had been a big collision in one of the games I can't remember which series it was but it just seemed like one of the players stepped over the blue line and just got erased and it yeah. seems like it just came out of nowhere. And Adam said, well, that guy's not protecting himself. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, pull over. So I pulled over and I called up the clip. And he said, mm-hmm. what happens when he steps over the blue line? And I said, I, Adam, I don't, I, I don't see what you're talking about. Like he just yeah. steps over the blue line and the defender stepped up and erased him. He goes, no, there's something really, really obvious. You're not seeing it. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch it again. I'm watching it and I'm watching it. And I'm like... Adam, I don't see it. He goes, okay, let me walk it. Let me walk it through. He said, as he steps over the blue line, how many hands does he have on the stick? And I'm watching it, and I go, okay, he has one. He goes, exactly. He said, I see. And then he said, when did he put his second hand on the stick? And I said, as soon as he got past the blue line. And he said, yes. Now, what happened when he put his hand on the stick? And I'm like, I don't know. He put his hand on the stick, Adam. He goes, no, you're not yeah. seeing it. <laughs> he said, watch his eyes. His eyes for a second, as he puts his hand on his stick, your natural instinct is for your eyes to come down and look at your hand going on the stick. And he said he stepped over the blue line, and that's where you're vulnerable. And he put his eyes down because he was putting his hand on the stick. And he said, my guys hate me, but we do the most boring thing. Shifley will talk about this. He said, yeah. we do the most boring things. And But I go, I, he says, like, to your point, Sean, I'm trying to protect my players. He said, we'll do things like I'll have the guys just practice keeping their heads up as they put their bottom hand on the stick. And it's so boring. And the guys hate it. And it's monotonous. Like, Adam, what are you doing? He goes, but that's a way to protect yourself. And then, Sean, like, you play. Like, think about it. How many times do you just instinctively, when you put your hand on the stick, just your eyes come down yeah. just for a second? It's an instinct. And Oates yes. tries to get that out of everybody's. And it's not exactly, like, there's a reason why Adam Oates guys, again, wide brush statement from me here, generally don't yeah. get hurt very much. Because yes. it's that tiny little attention to detail. Just training your eyes up as you put your bottom hand on a stick. Yeah. Holy smoke. So when you mentioned Oates with Shifley, I'm like, okay, I got to tell you this story, Sean. Like, I'm sure yeah. that one resonates with you. Yeah, well, and just quickly, a couple things there. That's what I meant when I said when I'm talking to the audience. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm talking down to them. What you just explained is the minutia that no hockey player, even high-level hockey players for the most part, don't even think about. They don't think about that or the danger of looking down <laughs> to correct your hand on your stick. But these yeah. upper-level guys do because they're going to Adam Oates and he sees this and other people don't see it. Just a quick one because you mentioned him and getting injured. A couple of years ago, Mark Shifley got hit from the, behind in the boards race it was a bit of a dirty play and he ended up having a separated shoulder and a whole bunch of problems involved with that he told Mm -hmm. me after that because i said well i guess you let adam down by getting injured and he said you joke but like that's the situation that i got a phone call i go to the hospital i get a phone call it's adam oates the first question he has is are you okay he says yeah eventually i'm going to be fine his second question is what the heck were you thinking right because adam oates looks (laughs) at that play and he doesn't excuse mark shifley for putting himself in a situation to get injured you know so it's again bringing this back to kyle connor he's one of these guys and like what hockey fans may not understand these guys are so high level thinking they're making sure that they don't put themselves in a situation to get injured so i would think kyle connor you know this isn't a careless play by him this is him at at all times really Mm -hmm. looking out for himself but sometimes you just can't help it tops in the central how did they do this they did it with uh, an extremely, extremely consistent game and a mindset of going out and believing that the 
system that the coach has laid down for them is going to put them in a position to win every single hockey game every night, whether they've got their fastball, whether they don't have their fastball, whether they've got everyone in their lineup, whether they don't. This is one of the reasons why if, and like knock on wood, anyone in this situation, if Kyle Connor, uh, if this doesn't work out for him in this situation, he's out for a little bit of time, why I would expect the Winnipeg Jets will survive it and not crumble underneath it. It's hard to lose a player of that caliber I would think the Winnipeg Jets would be fine and and you're kind of seeing it so the last couple games are a great example of that right like last night they fall down in that game they get a little bit flustered they're angry Mark Shifley goes and gets in that fight not only does he get in that fight but he eats a couple right which allows the other team to build momentum Mm -hmm. off it but the Jets get back into that game because guys like Vlad Nemesnikov come out and set up a goal and Nino Niederreiter Mm -hmm. who's a third line player on one of the best third lines in the NHL, but Morgan Barron goes out and gets a goal in this situation. And then the previous game, I think, is a really great example. They they beat a Colorado Avalanche team, um, and and they oh, do yeah. it with their depth. Like their fourth line was the best line in that game. And granted, a player like Nathan McKinnon is gonna get his his points in. You cannot help that. The Jets understand that, but the Jets made the gamble in that game that their depth would outstrip the high-end talent that you saw in the Colorado Avalanche. That game essentially is for first place, Jeff. Um, and and the Jets go out and win this next game. And so they're there. So what, one of the things we've seen from the Winnipeg Jets this year, is in years past, they wouldn't bring their, their A game to teams below them in the standings. This year, they're taking care of right. business in that respect. The team's chasing them all this time. They beat Arizona twice. They beat St. Louis twice. Chicago comes into town. They don't stumble there, right? They'd had a little bit of trouble beating the upper echelon teams. They've still to beat the the Dallas Stars, the LA Kings, the uh, uh, Vegas Golden Knights. Mm-hmm. But they're starting to get there with a win over the Carolina Hurricanes the other day. They beat the Florida Panthers. Now they beat the Colorado Avalanche. They're, they, they've been establishing their game. Uh, that game has allowed them to beat the lesser teams. Now they're finding a way to beat the better teams, and that's what's allowed them to climb over a lot of those teams and put themselves in a position where they're leading in the Central. You know, an incredible stat about this Winnipeg Jet squad have not allowed more than three goals in the last 16 games. Like, that is remarkable. And I can't help you hearing, you know, um, you explain, you know, why this is working so well uh, for Winnipeg and now how they find themselves top spot in the in the central division over the quarter mark of the, of the season. And I can't help but thinking to myself, how much of this, and I got about 45 seconds, Sean, how much of this is Connor Hellebuck? Yeah. I knew you were going to go there because uh, a fan who is uh, not paying attention from afar would look and say, well, of course that's happening. They have Connor Hellebuck in it. Connor Hellebuck has yet to reach the levels that we've seen from him in the past. And the Winnipeg Jets, to a degree, won't let him do that because the old Winnipeg Jets team would hang him out to dry, force him to be Superman, and that's how they would survive. Connor Hellebuck hasn't had to be Superman. He's had to be just a regular NHL goaltender who hasn't worked against them so far. So taking nothing away from Connor Connor Hellebuck, I think he's going to get a lot of rest, and I'll be interested to see how he responds in the playoffs this year because, to me, that's the final frontier for him. He hasn't jumped out ahead of that. But the Jets are a defensive monster right now because every single player on the ice is bought in. They play as a unit. They play hard defensively. They take pride in defending and shutting down teams. This is a complete and total team effort. The goaltenders, to a degree, I hate to say, Jeff, are kind of along for the ride. There's a lot of good things going on in Winnipeg, and Hmm. it starts with the team system under Rick Bonus. Real quick, who's the team MVP? If you had to name it right now. Uh, Mark Shifley. Uh, what a bounce back, what a character leader he's been so far, what a way that he's, you know, led the way to show like a, a player who's been maligned for his defensive play over the last couple of years has been phenomenal. I said this for years for uh, the Jets fans who were saying that they should trade Mark Shifley. Be careful what you wish for. I would have thought had they moved him this year, mm-hmm. he would have been the, the off-season pickup for whoever picked him up because I know what he's capable of. I don't think he'd been showing his full potential the last number of years. He's showing it now and while he's not up there in league scoring uh when it comes to complete players right now mark shifley should be in the conversation for the best balance of defense and offense in the entire nhl 
And it was him that came to the aid, as you mentioned, of uh, Kyle Connor yesterday. Uh, Sean, as always, full value, uh, great insight. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise, Powell. We'll check back soon. I think we'll be talking a lot more about the Winnipeg Jets, considering how well they've played. Thanks so much, pal. Appreciate it. Always enjoy my time with you, bud. Sean Reynolds covers the Winnipeg Jets for Sportsnet. Uh, we thank him for his time today. In the meantime, now, we park a couple of moments for our friend Matt Marchese and Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Matty, you've got four to choose from. Are you tempted to uh, go into the John Tavares returns to Long Island waters, or are we going elsewhere? I thought about it, but no, we're going to go Calgary and Colorado. <laughs> this one in Colorado. Uh, the puck line is avalanche minus one and a half. The under has hit in five of the last six between these two in Colorado. Calgary is five and 10 in the last 15 road games, and Colorado has covered the puck line in five of the last six between these two in Colorado. You know, it's um, – I know I'm going to get, you know, sort of harp on on one thing here. Elliot talked about the Calgary Flames a, a couple of moments ago, um, and I, I do wonder whether we're on the on the horizon seeing, uh, you know, Dustin Wolf get an extended run. You know, I'm of the mind, you know, let the kid cook. Let's see what he has. Markstrom's out uh, with the uh, with the injury, and unless, you know, what you're showcasing Dan Vladar, let Wolf cook, see what he can do. I, I keep coming back to this Avalanche team and – the second line center position. And I had wondered about the pace that the Colorado Avalanche set and the Avalanche play at and whether Ryan Johansson could play at that pace. Uh, Now, he's not going to be able to skate at that pace, but there's a difference between skating at that pace and playing at that pace. And there's a really interesting um, article on Ryan Johansson in The Athletic today written by our good friend Peter Baugh. I'll read you part of it. This doesn't take away from the fact that Johansson's first third of the season has been rocky. The veteran is averaging 0.41 points per game, his lowest rate since 2012-2013. Jared Bednar has taken him off the top power play unit, and he's averaging his lowest ice time, 14.32, since his rookie season. Something to watch tonight for the Avalanche. Uh, That was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book. Bet local. Coming up in hour two, Brian Boucher on the Flyers, Rob Rossi on the Penguins. Keystone State time in hour two of the program, and we stay tuned to find out about Perron and Goodbranson and impending suspensions. All right? Across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360, and where you're listening to podcasts, Merrick Show continues. Hour two's next. deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2 across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Also, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and wherever you listen to your podcast and wherever, I suppose, as well. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, we'll talk about the uh, the woes of the Pittsburgh Penguins. What's happening there and what's happening with Jesse Pugliarvi on a tryout. Rob Rossi from The Athletic stops by at the bottom of the hour too, but we stay in the Keystone State. We'll talk about a positive story in Pennsylvania, and that is the Philadelphia Flyers who find themselves second in the Metropolitan Division, as we all predicted. Uh, Brian Boucher joins me now. Brian, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I'm doing great, Jeff. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, the, the pleasure is mine. So I, I suppose the question is how, like we can sort of drill down on the, the players and Tortorella and how things have gotten to this point for Philadelphia. Um, but how have they just sort of in a, in a wide brush sense, how have the Flyers been able to do this? We thought this was going to be, you know, Anaheim and San Jose and Chicago territory for the Philadelphia Flyers at this point of the season. Well, I, I think, uh, when you get a, a full complement of players back in your lineup, I, I think right off the hop, you uh, you put yourself in a better position. And with Couturier coming back and Cam Atkinson returning, uh, it kind of slots everybody in a, in a proper role, I guess you could say. And so right from day mm-hmm. one, that was, a, that was a positive for this team. Um, then beyond that, um, just a buy-in from a group that has uh, taken on this, idea that they are 
their team versus everybody else versus the world. Nobody believed in them. There, there seems to be a rallying cry around this group. Uh, they're they're a tight knit group of players that that play hard for one another. They love being with with each other. Um, it's evident when you see them around the rink. That's how they approach uh, their work on a daily basis. And um, you know, look, I mean, then the staples of how you how you're able to do it. You, you know, you defend well. You have a good penalty kill. Your goaltending's good. Um, and and you find ways to hang in in games, and that's what the Flyers have done. They've done it without having a power play that has been. I mean, it really hasn't been very good all year long. Yet they find ways to score goals at um, crucial times. Shorthanded, they've scored a lot of goals. They've scored timely goals, and because of that, confidence is growing, and they've they've stacked up some wins. You know, there's a there's a lot of reasons why the Philadelphia Flyers shouldn't be where they are you know whether it's you know if Tory Krug agrees to waive his no trade Travis Sanheim is playing in St. Louis uh if Sean Couturier doesn't come back the way that he came back there's a trouble with that spot um if the number of rumors about players from Konechny to Walker to whomever uh come true all of a sudden this lineup looks so different how have and I'm really impressed with Sanheim because he's heard all this stuff for so long um and I know he didn't have a great season last year but how has this group been able to you know kind of turn off the noise like you played in the NHL like you know how noisy it gets you know how loud it gets and well maybe one or two guys can tune out the noise it's tough for an entire team to tune out the noise around them how have the Philadelphia Flyers been able to with everything around them seemingly at times chaotic or at least surrounded by question marks how have they been able to just put the horse blinders on and play well, I think a lot of it probably starts up top, to be honest with you, Jeff. I mean, uh, you think about uh, the change in general manager, the change in president, um, you know, just the leadership up top. Uh, Dan Hilferty, now the CEO of the of the Philadelphia Flyers and Comcast. I just feel like from the leadership from up top on down has kind of created a new way of thinking around Philadelphia. And I think those, you know, people like Danny Breer and Keith Jones talk to the players daily. And I think they reassured those guys that everything's okay. Like, just go out and play. Don't worry about all the noise. Uh, do your job. We're going to do our job. And we're going to try and create a culture around here that I think uh, for people that are alumni of the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, it creates a culture that I'm proud of, you know, a place that people wanted to play here before. And they're trying to recreate that. And the people that were here to start the season, I think they told those guys, like, just go out and play and we're going to make it as enjoyable as possible for you guys so that you can go out and do your jobs. Now, in Sandheim's case, you got to give the kid a lot of credit because uh, there was yep. noise in the off season, and uh, that can be difficult. But he's armed with a long-term contract. And once that time came and went, you know, you have to turn the page as a professional and realize that it's a business. And if the business side said, look, we're looking to make a trade and it didn't work out, well, now you're here. The reality is, is that Ivan Provorov is no longer here. So now this is your defense. You are the, the, the kingpin of this, of this decor. I think he took it to heart. I think he uh, welcomed mm. that challenge. And, and I think he, he wanted to prove to John Tortorella that he was more than the player that he was last year when he was kind of floundering and, and, and was struggling with consistency. He's been, as you said, impressive. He's, uh, even though his plus minus is not great, that, that is a, a skewed stat to me from watching him play on a nightly basis because they want him to be aggressive. They want him to be going in the offensive zone. They want a five-man mm. attack. So at times, there is going to be times when you get caught. They've recognized they've been playing him a lot. They're trying to tailor those minutes a little bit. But uh, he was terrific against Colorado. You can't keep a guy stapled on the bench uh, when he's yeah. going the way he was against the Avalanche. And they, and they decided to play him. I think he might have played 20, 25 minutes plus that night uh, because he, he certainly was that good. Uh, he's been a huge, a huge uh, development on the back end for this Flyers team. With Brian Boucher breaking down the Philadelphia Flyers who find themselves second place in the Metropolitan Division to kick off this week. You know, I can't decide, Brian, whether John Tortorella is a good coach for a rebuild 
or a bad coach for a rebuild. Normally, rebuilds, we think, okay, picking up first overall, second overall, maybe third overall draft choices. Uh, that's not going to happen with the Philadelphia Flyers. And so for that reason, I say, well, Tortorella is clearly the wrong coach because you're not getting your Macklin Celebrinis and your Cole Eisermans, etc. There are players on the horizon. We think of Cutter Goche and, and Matt, Matt Faye Mitchkoff for the Philadelphia Flyers, certainly. But then the other side of me, Brian, says, well, hang on a second here, Merrick. Like, no, this this is a good coach for the for a rebuild because of what because of the base that he's creating here for all these young players to step into. So Brian, how do you see it? Is John Tortorella the right coach for a rebuild or the wrong coach for a rebuild? Well, if your definition of a rebuild is to tank and to get the highest pick possible, it's not the right coach. Um, but if you're looking to create a culture and a base with which you want your organization to be identified as, he's the right coach. I mean, look at the players that have that have gotten better under under his watch. Uh, Tyson Forster has gotten better. He's an everyday oh, NHLer. Yeah. He's, he's a terrific top six winger. Uh, that's under John Tortorella's watch. Sanheim has improved this year immensely. He's taken it upon himself to get better. We talked about that. Cam York has taken another step in his progression uh, as a young player. Um you know, I know that there's been some, you know, some, uh, you know, noise around Morgan Frost. But, you know, if you watch the way Morgan Frost played against Colorado, he had a terrific game against the Avalanche. He was assertive, making plays, engaged. Yeah. Uh, that's a work in progress. But he's trying to get to Morgan Frost the way he got to some of those other guys. So, you know, if you're talking about developing young young players, he, he is uh, he's doing a much better job of being open-minded about playing the young guys. But he's also not just going to, freely mm-hmm. hand the mice time they've got to do things a certain way it's black and white you understand what you're getting into with torts uh when he's coaching the team and to be honest with you the results are there this year and i think the, the foundation that needed to be set there the discipline that you have to play with not talking about staying out of the penalty box all the time but uh the structure that you have to play yeah. with the intensity and the attention to detail it has to be there with him or you don't play i think it was missing for several years here in philadelphia they lost their way I think Torch was the right hire uh, when mm-hmm. they brought him in. It took a little time, and uh, and the results are there right now. Now, does that change the way they want to approach uh, this rebuild that Danny Breer and Keith Jones have talked about? I don't think so. I think they still have their eye on the prize long term, um, and they're looking down the road when guys like Mitchkoff arrive. That they, they want to be a team that's contending for several years and not just be a team that gets in and gets out year after year. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, listen, you know John Tortorella, and, you know, last year was a lean year. This year so far, things have been really good for the Philadelphia Flyers. But through this rebuild, you know, at times, you know, John Tortorella has hinted at, you know what, we're, we're going to remember this night. Okay, you ran up the score and you kept throwing out PP1. We couldn't do anything again about it, but we're going to remember. How long a memory does John Tortorella have here with the Philadelphia Flyers? Uh, I'm, I'm failing to understand the question. So as far as like when somebody so uh, it's, takes it's, liberties it's, on the team? Or? So like, well, not necessarily like physical liberties, but like as the Philadelphia Flyers, like when you go through rebuilds, there are really tough nights. Yeah. And, and Tortorella sort of hinted at this before. Like there are, there are tough nights and there are some times where the other team will take advantage of it. And, you know, the obvious yeah. one is, you know, you run up a six to one score in the third period and you're still throwing your first unit power play out there. You know, mm-hmm. Tortorella sort of mused that, like, yes, we're going to remember that, and somewhere down the road there will be a receipt. Uh, how much okay. do you think that John Tortorella is remembering things that happened to the Philadelphia Flyers as they try to rebuild this thing? You know, I, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I, I look at Torts as a guy that's very day-to-day, very detailed in, in the way he wants his team to play. He doesn't focus on what other teams are doing or what they say or what you know I, I really feel like he cares about what is internal in his in his group um so i don't know that he uses it as bulletin board material to be honest with you um but then again i never played for Tord, so I, I don't know how he handles those situations but he just strikes me as a guy that really is unfazed by what others say either about him or his group and just tries to get his team prepared mm-hmm. to play on a daily basis and um no that can be a demanding too you know every day when you're trying to push and push and push 
you know, sometimes, you know, you can make good strides and then sometimes you can plateau. It'll be interesting to see, and he's talked about it, that there's going to be some tough days ahead. And uh, although they've gotten sure. off to a very good start here in the first third is third of the season, I don't think he he takes it lightly or takes it for granted that this is just going to continue. He knows there's going to be some difficult days. They've been relatively healthy so far, and I think he just wants to make sure that this team is ready to play consistently because when they're prepared and uh, they play with the intensity and detail that they play with, they're they're competitive. I mean, there's probably, honestly, maybe two or three games all year long this season so far where you can say visually you knew that they just weren't in it. Uh, every other game they've competed in and been right there to the very end. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's personalize this to your position. Uh, you know the old saying, show me a good goalie and I'll show you a good coach. Your thoughts on Carter Hart and Sammy Erson so far? They've been really good. Um I'll start with Harrison first. It, he has emerged as a guy that is uh, dependable, reliable, and you can play him. And that after the first two games, it was yeah. bumpy for him. He gave up five against Dallas in an OT loss, and then he gave up seven in his next start against Anaheim, where he wasn't he wasn't sharp at all. Since then, he's been terrific, and uh, he just needed to play and get more reps. And when when Hart went down with. Um, a little injury there against Buffalo and then got sick. It allowed Erson to get going and get some reps. So that's been a nice positive development. And because of that, I think it's allowed Hart to get much needed rest, um, even though he may not want it, but it allows him to have quality starts. And I think that's super important because it's a tough league now. I mean, the chances are there uh, in, in the high teens on most nights, and it can be hard for a guy to shoulder the load uh, consistently night after night. So, uh, and in saying that, Hart, I think, has been um, right there in the top three best players on this team. And I would put uh, in that category mm-hmm. Konechny, Sanheim, and Hart are the three guys for me that have been uh, the most consistent and valuable to this group so far. Um, yeah, I mean, Hart, I, I, I'm hard. I'm, I'm trying to think if there was any poor performances and none that I would say that have been brutal. Uh if anything, maybe a, an average night uh, once or twice in his starts. But since then, he's been good. And he was particularly good against Colorado uh, in that game and a big reason why, yeah. they, why they were able to win. Uh, where do you put Sean Couturier in that mix? Like, he's someone that, you, like, I don't care who you are, a Flyers fan, not a Flyers fan, even a Penguins fan. Uh, you're cheering for Sean Couturier after everything that he's been through. And listen, you know, now that, you know, Patrice Bergeron is is out of the mix, you know, there's a very specific trophy for two-way forwards that is very much up for grabs. Your thoughts on what Couturier's done so far this season? I think he's gotten better in the last uh, five plus games, uh, five games or so. I think I've started to see a much, uh, much different uh, Sean Couturier. And it's not to say that he was poor at the start. I just think it was taking time for him to get used to the rigors of playing, you know, three games and four nights and, and recovering, um, you know, to the to the grind of the NHL season. And he's never been a guy that's been the most fleet of foot skater. So sometimes when you look at him, it, it looks like he can be laboring. Um, but man, in the last five, I've seen a, a much better guy on faceoffs, which shows me that he's getting stronger. Uh, he seems to be recovering well after games. And the next night, he, I think there was a couple nights where he played 21 plus, I think. Uh, and he was, he was good. Uh, he was good against Colorado. He was good against Pittsburgh in those back-to-back games in the, in, in the home and home. And to me, that's a, a real positive development. Because I think there were question marks coming into the season what Sean Couturier we were going to get. I mean, when you miss that amount of time, there is always trepidation going into a season, whether or not a guy's going to be able to to handle it, whether he would have a setback, and, mm-hmm. and would he be the same. And I think in the first 15 or so games, uh, there were some nights that were good. There were some nights that were not so good. But I think lately he's gotten much stronger, much better. And to me, that's a great sign because they, they need a true number one center. That, that spot needs to be solidified. And when he's there, it, it allows them to, to slot everybody else more properly. Now the next development is can a guy like Morgan Frost uh, take the number mm. two spot and run with it? This is, uh, to me, is I'm watching that situation as if, if he can solidify himself as a true number two center, uh, that's great news for the Flyers, but it, you know, it, too often it's 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 good, 
and then it's and then it's off. You know, it's just inconsistent. But the way he played against Colorado was great. And if he can solidify his game, then you got a nice one-two punch down the middle. Okay, let me um, uh, let me present a scenario here. We'll, we'll close on this one. This this is a difficult one, or, or or maybe it's not because you've already mentioned sort of eyes on the prize uh, for Daniel Briere and uh, and Keith Jones here. Um, let's say at trade deadline time, the Philadelphia Flyers still find themselves in a playoff position, and a team comes knocking. And you know how much defensemen are very much coveted around trade deadline time. Uh, someone proposes a you know knock your socks off. Too good of a deal to turn down for Walker and Sealer. What does Daniel Briere do? You said knock your socks off, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, in my opinion, uh, they're not going to be clouded by the success that they're having now or even fast forward two and a half more months. They understand what their team is. They know that they've got to get more talented uh, in a lot of areas. And the only way to do that is to, um, you know, acquire assets that can help you do that and, and be in draft positions to go and get guys and develop those players. Um, it's not to say that they don't appreciate, you know, what Nick Sealer and, and Sean Walker have done for, for their, their group so far. Those guys are playing for their careers, too. Um, but I think there's no question that Danny Breer has made it clear that they are thinking about the future. They want this franchise to be a Philadelphia Flyers team that you are talking about year after year, competing for an Eastern mm. Conference uh, berth into the Stanley Cup Finals. The, they don't want to be a team that gets in, gets out, gets in, gets out. So the only way to do it is you got to make some hard decisions. So to answer your question, I think they do. If they get a knock your socks off type of deal, I think they're making they're making the deal. Interesting. Uh, I don't disagree. And I could also see a scenario where, and perhaps specifically for Walker, if there's a knock your socks off deal come trade deadline, I can still see Walker coming back and signing with the Philadelphia Flyers. I, I know how much they like him and I know how much he likes playing in, uh, in, in Philadelphia. Um, Brian, yeah. on that, we'll let you go. Thanks, as always, for being really, really generous with your time. And listen, great answers, really great insight and, and very thoughtful. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Much appreciated. You bet, Jeff. Take care. There he is. Brian Boucher covers the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, man, is he on top of it. Um, and, and that is, like, that's always the conundrum when you're doing, when you're going through a rebuild and you have some, I mean, it's always welcome, but you have some success that wasn't foreseen. Like, I don't think anyone looked at, you know, Elliot and I always go back and forth on this because Elliot was of the mind that this is going to be, and they still may end up there. Who knows? We'll see. But this was going to be a team that was in the Macklin-Celebrini uh, sweepstakes or in the Macklin-Celebrini conversation. Um, but they're very not in the Macklin-Celebrini conversation uh, right now. We'll see what the rest of the uh, season brings. But what happens at trade deadline when your rebuilding team is uh, in the playoffs? And the other side of it, too, and this is where, like, this is where someone like Dan Hilferty comes into the conversation as well. Um, sometimes, when you're that close to making the playoffs, there is pressure from above, saying, "Hold on a second here. We we've invested a lot in this organization, and we've invested a lot in this rebuild. You have a chance to get us some playoff revenue." Nine times out of ten, the default is we're going to do whatever it takes to get the playoff revenue. Thank you very much. That's where everybody needs to be aligned. And, you know, Elliot and I talked to Dan Helferty last year uh, on the podcast, and it does very much seem like, you know, the pillars, the main three here, Briere, Jones, and Hilferty are aligned on what the long-term future is for the Philadelphia Flyers. Let's bring in uh, Matt Marchese before we get to Rob Rossi at the bottom of the hour and talk about the Pittsburgh Penguins and what's happened there and what's the immediate and long-term future uh, of the Penguins. Hello, Matt Marchese. How are you? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm good, man. It was a lot over the weekend, and you know, a, a lot of it revolved around: uh, was this a bad hit? Was this a suspendable hit? What, like, you know, it, it almost seems as if from last year to this year, it's almost completely two different seasons. Last year had a softer touch, let's just say. Mm -hmm. This year has been a viper pit. 
really. Like there's like every every single night, and we've talked about fighting being up, and now suspensions are are going up, and we're standing by to see what happens with uh, the hearings today with Good Branson and with David Perron as well. Just seems nastier out there, Maddie. Just seems nastier. Well, we saw the increase in fights at the beginning of the year as well, so I, I think there's that. I feel like coming into this season, there were a lot of teams that thought that they were maybe close or at least like, okay, we can be a playoff team. And I know that a lot of people, it's like a lot of window dressing when it comes to, yeah, yeah, we're a playoff team and we think we're great. But I actually feel like this year coming in that a lot of teams felt like they were closer to that. So maybe that's why we're seeing such an increase in, let's call it what it is. It's violence, which is fine because it's part of the game. Um, But I hated that Nick Cousins hit on Eric Branson. Hate, 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 hate. Because there's two two reasons. Well, okay. Okay. No, no, continue. No, no, go. Because I, I might go on a tangent. So uh, I was ahead. just gonna say the but the 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 officials in, in that let's not forget the initial call was a five, which triggers a review, and then when they had a second look at it, they said, "Now nah, you know what? That's a two minute minor." Mm-hmm. And it's Good Branson who's having the hearing for what he did to Cousins afterwards, namely, jumped him and pummeled him to the ice. What was your because the and I, I know we might be splitting hairs on this one, but this was a curl behind the net. Both players trying to get inside position. Well, That's here's how the referees saw it. Here's the thing: Nick Cousins has a bit of a reputation around the NHL. Just just a thought that Nick Cousins has a reputation of being well, not the cleanest player in the world. And my issue with it is, if you are going to throw that hit, if you are going to be that player, fine. You can't turtle twice afterwards. I'm sorry, you can't. So now Erica Branson, like what, if you're in Erica Branson's shoes, what are you going to do about that? You're going to do the exact same thing as he did, and now he's going to face a suspension and Nick Cousins gets nothing. Like this is the same Nick Cousins that was swinging sticks at at guys in the Bruins series last year. It's the same story Mm -hmm. with a guy like that. And again, I appreciate guys that play that role because it's not an easy role to play. But you got to step up when when your number is called and his number was called and he didn't step up last night. That's what, that's what bothered me the most about all of that. Why do you think the officials took it from a five to a two? That, that one, I don't, that one I was kind of perplexed by, honestly, (laughs) because usually, because they saw it as two guys trying to get inside position around the net and it had a bad outcome. Like, I know you're looking at the nameplate and the number and I get it. Like there, you're right. There's a, reputation that comes along with that. Like, put it this way, if it's, you know, Alexander Barkov or um, or, or anybody else uh, on the team who has a quote-unquote softer touch, um, we're not having Sam Reinhart. Like, we're not having that conversation, not having that exact same conversation. You're right, it's, it's Nick Cousins. So do you get the benefit of the doubt? No, but if you remove the number and the nameplate and just look at the act itself... Yeah. Is it not just two guys going for inside position, going around the net? Well, it in a way, yes. But if they're watching it, they're not watching it in real time either. They're watching it in slow motion in a lot of these replays. And at no point is Eric Goodbranson in a position where he can take a shoulder-to-shoulder hit. He's not. He's ahead of Nick Cousins. Nick Cousins comes in from an angle where he's not going to get him on his shoulder in the front or the side. He's going to get him on the back. And that's never going to result at that speed in a safe play. Never. So I look at it and say, that's a five, and then none of the other stuff happens. None of it. Even if, even if they look at it and say Nick Cousins gets a fine for it, that's fine. But the good Branson stuff afterwards does not happen, and he's not getting suspended. But the thing is, I, I don't know if you're an NHL official that just to turn the, you know, to to open the release valve or turn the temperature down. You take a two-minute minor and say, you know what, we need to calm everybody down, so let's throw a nickel here at Cousins. No, no. and I, I think you open up a lot more dangerous doors if you do, because when you say, like, oh, if they just would have stuck with the five, then none of that would have happened. No, but if I'm, you're an official and you look at that and you say, all of our training says that's a minor. Yeah. But in order to calm everybody down, and so Nick Cousins doesn't get killed later on, we need to throw a five at him here. I think you're getting into... I think you're getting into tricky territory. And I'm not saying that that was... I'm just saying that that's what the result of it was. I think that in that moment, the five should have stood because I think that that is a five-minute boarding penalty. Based on everything that I've seen, to me, that looks like a five-minute boarding penalty. Like, look at... So, for example, the... um, Oh, my God, who was the hit? Uh, It was... um, 
It was on Luke Hughes. Which game? Why, why am I blanking? Um, help me. Garnet Hathaway. Got five oh, in a game Hathaway, yes. for a hit that was not nearly as bad and not nearly as dangerous as the hit last night. Both in the field of play, both um, with, you know, and one was an icing that the whistle got blown later, but the, the, the hit on Hughes was not nearly as dangerous as that one last night, and that resulted in a five-minute major. So this is the okay, issue that I have. Then that's then. Now, in that situation, even Luke Hughes, you know, talked about this afterwards that that was a situation where he needs to play to the whistle and he relaxed on a on a race to the puck mm-hmm. um, and should have seen that coming. And that's like, okay, that's your that's your welcome to the NHL kid moment. Um, what did you think of the logic of the Evander Kane hit on Jonas Brodeen on Friday? Now, essentially, you look at that one and Kane is coming in as the F one. And Brodeen shoulder checks and sees Kane coming, but doesn't change his body position accordingly and ends up as a smudge on the boards, and now he's going to miss some time. And the reason that Kane isn't you know, called on the, on the carpet, the DOPS, is Brodeen shoulder checked but didn't protect himself. Do you like that? I do think that... I'll... <laughs> I do think that the onus a lot of the time is on the player for not trying to protect yourself either. Like that's a that's a that one that is open for interpretation because you also don't know what's going through the guy's head. Maybe in that shoulder check, like I'm assuming he sees Evander Kane, but maybe he doesn't. Like I can't get into his brain at that point. But I do think I don't that know. he he turned his head, looked at him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a pretty good indication. I know. He saw Evander Kane but, coming. But but the point the point stands that. It is your job to protect yourself in that moment, if you can. Like, I don't think Eric Goodbranson could have protected himself there, right? Whereas Brodeen, the puck comes, it's moved, and then he gets hit, right? It's it's a, it's more bang-bang than that, you know, but you got to protect yourself too. Turn your body, whatever you got to do, like even if you go the other way with the puck, but you have to protect yourself too. You know, um, I think in a lot of ways, these conversations, uh, and th- this happens in other areas in life as well, um, but what we're talking about is suspensions and uh, whether suspensions can calm down actions. And what I find when we have these conversations is we look for tactical solutions to strategic problems, okay? So we're not actually addressing the strategy. We're just addressing the tactic, Okay, like this happens. Uh, th- th- this happens a lot. You can look at like societies this way, um, but the, one of the real issues here is there's an there's a there's been an environment created where these things can happen and can happen regularly. I think a lot of it is a combination of the game being as fast as it is. I think it's the removal of obstruction. No one's slowing down F1s anymore. Like you come in with a full head of steam on every single forecheck. There's a consequence to that. And I think the other part of all of this is too that players grow up now. And listen, Maddie, you coach, you know, like you see this in, in minor hockey slash youth hockey in the States. Players don't expect to be hit. Mm-hmm. So they don't prepare themselves for contact. I mentioned this on the podcast this morning. Uh, with Elliot, I remember having a conversation with Craig Simpson, and I remember asking him when his kid, uh, this is even before he went to North Dakota, um, uh, how do you talk to him about contact? How do you talk to him about playing? And Craig said, I tell Dylan at, uh, at every single moment while you're on the ice, expect to be hit. That way, if you're hit, you're prepared for it, and if you're not, it's a bonus. And you got away with a shift without getting clobbered. But either way, you're protecting yourself. I don't know that players either in the NHL now or coming into the NHL right now have that same mindset. No. I really don't. And the other part of the mindset is players will deliberately put themselves in position to get smudged because uh, it'll either draw a penalty or it will allow them to protect the puck. Like, turning your back to a player is a deliberate strategy that players use. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean... You're either going to go on the power play or are you going to keep the puck? Yeah. 
this is this is a conversation for a, a much it's a much bigger topic but i think it's a there, bigger one there, yeah there's a conversation to be had about a few things one when i started when i was playing hockey we learned to check and how to take take a hit at 10 we had a lot more time to, and i know that there's a lot more info now that says you shouldn't be doing that but yeah. I think that the biggest issue right now is not only that they don't expect it, Jeff. I think coming up, I don't think that, and I could be wrong because, I mean, I dealt with older kids, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit better because your boys are, are getting to that age, but I don't know that, that kids are taught how to take a hit anymore, and I think that's uh, also a big yeah. part of it. My oldest, who's 13, uh, he is. Uh, this is for a bigger conversation. we got to get a break, so I want to get to Rob Rossi. But, uh, again, just from my own uh, example with, with my kids, my oldest boy has taught that um, on a consistent basis. But I don't know for everybody else. Yeah. Um, but we got to hustle. This is for a bigger conversation. All right, uh, to the Pittsburgh Penguins in a couple of moments here. Rob Rossi is standing by from The Athletic. What has happened uh, with the Pittsburgh Penguins? What can be done about it? And is there a chance that Yessi Pugliarvi ends up a penguin. Rob Rossi in moments from The Athletic. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360, and wherever you get your podcasts. Back in a moment. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So it's pretty easy to say one of the more intriguing teams heading into this year's edition of the uh, the uh, NHL um, regular season were the Pittsburgh Penguins with the uh, flurry of moves that uh, new manager Kyle Dubas has instituted and, you know, bringing the band back. I think that, and bringing in Eric Carlson amongst others, and we'll get there in a couple of seconds. Expectations were pretty high for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Have those expectations been met? Uh, No. And today, Kyle Dubas addressed uh, the media and for comments and thoughts on the Pittsburgh Penguins. And what Kyle Dubas had to say today, we turn to Rob Rossi from The Athletic, who's been very patiently uh, hanging on here as we get through a stop set. Uh, Rob, thanks as always for stopping by. How are you today? Great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, the pleasure is all mine. Um, before we get into uh, what Kyle Dubas had to say today to assembled media, just your, your thoughts on um, what were your expectations at this point of the season for the Pittsburgh Penguins at the beginning of the season? Like, did you think they would be here now? No, I, I thought they would struggle uh, the first four to six weeks just to work in what was, you know, a third of the roster that had been changed over. And I did expect the power play to be early on. um, I would say hit or miss. It's been all miss. Um, As I like to say, their power plays at like 9.5%. That's a very misleading number because uh, they've scored six of their seven power play goals in three games. So uh, I don't even know that it's as good as 9.5%. it, the power play has been a catastrophic event for this team. It's it's the single biggest reason they are where they are. Um, today, Kyle Dubas uh, reaffirmed that Mike Sullivan is the coach for this team, saying until we see the team hit its potential, we don't turn our attention to the coach. Uh, in some situations when the manager gives the coach the uh, the seal of approval and the, the vote of confidence, we usually say, uh-oh, uh, all of a sudden, they're loading up pink paper in the fax machine. Uh, how did you look at the endorsement of Sullivan today? Uh, not surprised. I, I took it as sincere. Um, I don't think Dubis is a sort of uh-oh type of guy. Um, I think if he was thinking about a coaching change, he would have made it. Um, just because he seemed pretty decisive when he got here that he wanted Mike Sullivan to be part of this. I know Mike was part of the sort of discussions for for all the moves they've made this year especially the Aaron Carlson one and look I I don't Mm -hmm. uh, I've covered Mike a long time so it's you know it's 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 tough I mean he's been here nine years I've been on the B20 um so you know there's always that maybe you're a little too far in the forest right but I actually think he's done some of his best work the past two seasons 
given what has betrayed the team last year, goaltending and um, just a, a bottom six that was bereft of, of anything. And, and this year, a, uh, a situation where the power play has been woeful. Um, they've again had some depth challenges. Um, Mike's been trying everything. Um, at some point, it's on the players to, to pick up the coach. Um, I'm not surprised that he views Mike as the guy going forward also because Mike is a guy that has a really strong relationship with ownership. And I presume that when Kyle Dubas met with Fenway Sports Group, um, uh, based, and I don't even presume this based off what I heard about when, when those discussions were held in the summer about him taking over the Penguins, it was pretty much agreed that everyone thought Mike was the right coach for this organization. So um, I don't think mm-hmm. it's the dreaded pink slip of, uh, of uh, stays of execution that we were used to in the NHL. You know, there was a um, uh, there was a reference by Dubas today about uh, the bottom six, and we know that was a you know that was an avenue that uh, that Dubas went down and you know brought in a lot of new faces uh, to the Pittsburgh Penguins. It essentially said, look, if the uh, if the bottom six um, isn't performing up to our expectations, that one is all on me. I mean, he is the architect of this bottom six. We can't say that you know he put Crosby there or Gensel there or, or Malkin there. Uh, but the bottom six, uh, he's quite prepared to own. So given that he's publicly said he's owning it, what do you make of the bottom six, Rob? Uh, it's not good enough. It just isn't. And um, now that I do think that the injuries, the Matt and Nolatari were, were tough injuries because they occurred at a time when those two, along with Jeff Carter on the fourth line, appeared to be finding some chemistry and and, and dictating territorial play, maybe not so much as scoring. But I think those guys were finding something for the fourth line. The third line has been Lars Eller and whoever could possibly work there all season. Um, you know, Drew O'Connor's been kind of a staple on the third line. He's, he's moved up to uh, the top six role because of the injuries. But I think he's been a disappointment. I think they have yet to figure out what that bottom six is really going to be. The, the, the injuries to Achari and um, Nieto have also hurt because those guys were uh, big parts on the penalty kill, which was basically rebuilding itself completely this year and had been a strength for the Penguins. So, mm. But in terms of five-on-five play, the bottom six is just – it's not producing enough offensively. And when you're having – look, I mean – and I wouldn't just say that. I would say outside of Rust, Crosby, Malkin, and Gensel, nobody has lived up to expectations in terms of what were reasonable for the way they can impact games among the forwards. You know, um, speaking of those players, and I want to drill down on, on a couple here because, you know, we've talked about this, Rob, you've mentioned this before as well. There, you can't, especially now at the, the ages of, you know, Crosby and, and Malkin, um, Latang as well, you throw into that mix, given where they're at in their careers, you can't squander good seasons. And, you know, Sidney Crosby is having an excellent season. Um, Evgeny Malkin is having an excellent season here. Like, this has to be one of these scenarios where you can't, you cannot squander Crosby playing like this right now at 36 years of age. We don't know how many more times he's going to do this um, as he continues to age. Um, do you have a, a, a thought or two on that, on the idea and the pressure internally of not letting seasons like we see from Crosby, seasons like we're seeing right now from Malkin just sort of fritter away? I, I would make an argument that if the Penguins reach the Stanley Cup playoffs this year and Sidney Crosby keeps playing this way, he's as deserving of the Hart Trophy as any player. Um, because yeah. he's just still such a great player, and it's the most valuable player to his team. Um, it has been difficult to watch as somebody who's been here from day one uh, of the Crosby era to see him and Malkin be this healthy and this productive over the past year and a half, and the Penguins not be able to do more with it. Now, I should say, Kyle Dubas inherited a mess, and he was bold, he was decisive. Uh, Maybe he made some mistakes on some things, but he got a lot of things right. I mean, um, 
for instance, their goaltending has been a lot better this year uh, from a depth perspective, yep. in addition to Tristan Jari being healthy. Um, they've been okay on their bottom defense pairing, despite having nobody really established themselves as regulars for that pairing. Um, I do see what Kyle Dubas is building here, but yeah, I mean, there's an immense pressure because at some point, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin will go from being older players to players who have gotten old. Now, they haven't reached that point yet. Same with Chris Letang. Yeah. But they haven't reached that point yet. But but we're closer to that point coming than we are to their primes. So every season from here on out, to me, is win-now mode, as long as Sidney Crosby's mm. going to be here. And, and I think, and I've said this to you before, I, this notion about the Penguins doing a full rebuild, I... I I think that's, I don't know if this word resonates with the audience anymore, but that's hogwash. They're never going to fully rebuild as long yeah. as Sidney Crosby's here. I appreciate the word, and I think many of our listeners do as well. It's one of my favorites. I love it. Um, yeah, and, and let me let me ask one sort of sidebar question on Crosby before we get back to the Penguins. What happens on July 1st with Sidney Crosby? Um. I would imagine very quickly we're going to get an email that says Sidney Crosby has signed a multi-year extension. Mm. I mean, I would bet my house and the solar panels that save me a little bit of money on the few sunny days we get here in Pittsburgh <laughs> on it. I mean, I just, he is a creature of habit. Yeah. He, he loves yep. the, uh, he, he loves the community. Um, and I think with the three of them, Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, and I don't mean this to mean they don't want to win. They do. I think that's all they're interested in at this point. But I also think when you've spent that much time together as the longest, longest tenured trio in the history of North American sports, right? You've been in one place. I think you, at yeah. the end, feel like you want to leave it in a better situation than when you inherited it, Right. And when they inherited it, mm -hmm. it was kind of a mess. So I think they want to leave it for whoever comes next to be in a pretty good foundation. And they're not there yet. But, yeah, I, I'd be really surprised. I'll put you this way. If it doesn't happen July 1st, it'll happen be before July 4th because I, uh, I know the celebrations in, um, uh, out where his agent, Pat Brisson, lives out in California are really nice for the 4th of July yeah. holiday. And Pat's going to want to take them with his family. So. Uh, makes <laughs> makes a, does make a lot. Of, I think we're all expecting something on on July first about an extension for Crosby. He is just so all of our listeners and viewers know he's he still has only uh, one more year after this uh, left on his contract. He is eligible for an extension on July first. Okay, a couple of things, Rob, uh, just to drill down before we let you go. Um, I think a lot of people's eyebrows were raised, but probably shouldn't have been if you know Kyle Dubas. Um, at the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, offering Jesse Pugliarvi a tryout. Uh, this really does fit the M.O. of Dubas, uh, someone who has potential unlocked value that the, uh, the boxcar numbers don't betray, but the underlying numbers do. Uh, how did you greet the news about Pugliarvi getting a tryout with the Penguins? You know, quite candidly, I kind of thought it was like a no big deal, like no duh. What we used to say when I was a kid, like no duh. Obviously, he would. Yeah. This is exactly the type of player he would take a flyer on, assuming he got the good yep. medical reports. Um, there's no harm here. I mean, either Jesse plays his way onto this roster, right? Or he moves on to yep. another team that takes a chance on him. And, you know, I know his. I know his metrics don't mesh with his production um the penguins are kind of that way too um but i would say this given his size which they lack and i'm not saying he's a physical player but given his size and given his talent yeah. i don't think it's unreasonable to think he could come in here if healthy and be somebody that upgrades their bottom six and i'm looking specifically at maybe a third line role um, he might not be a guy that can handle every other game because of the, the hip injuries and the rehab and that, but is he a guy that's capable of giving them a spark? Yeah. And could that yeah. possibly help him reset his career? Yeah. So I, I actually think it's a shrewd bit of business because there's, there's no downside for the Penguins or him. Um, l let me finish with um, 
with the question about the the next time we have a look and make our decisions on the Pittsburgh Penguins, who they are, um, and how we should feel about them. Um, right now, this is just after the quarter mark, and Dubas addresses uh, the media. At what point do you think we take a step back and say, okay, now we have an even better idea of who these players are, who this team is. Is it all-star break? Is that what we're looking at now for our next Penguins audit? So it's funny. I asked Cal Dubas today what the timeline was. Um, you know, and he said that you know, he didn't want to say, like, look, it's the next two weeks or whatever. But he did say yeah. at the all-star break, he's going to have a real good idea of what he has to do with this team. I took that to mean that going into the all-star break, maybe that week of the all-star break, he's going to have reached a conclusion on whether this team has shown that it's, it's, it's put itself back in the type of position where maybe you make a move that helped them solidify themselves as a playoff contender. It's a team that maybe you don't do much with and you listen on some players that might be impending UFAs or anybody else, you know, outside of the core group. Um, or if a, or if this team, worst case scenario, is a is a sell-on, right? Um, I I right. get the sense though from talking to players in that locker room that they're viewing between now and January first as their best opportunity to get to put themselves in a in the best situation to make a run. Listen, on that, we are uh, unfortunately up against the clock. Oh, you know what? Let me just give you a, a, a quick one. If you give me a hot 30 seconds on how the market has reacted to Kyle Dubas, because uh, the market in Toronto, like there was, <laughs> this was considered very much out, out of the box. And this kid was just running the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And now you've given him the keys to the to the Chevy here. And he's driving this this Cadillac that is a, the Toronto Maple Leafs, et cetera. How has the market reacted to Dubas uh, running the entire operation here? They, they've they've treated him like they treat a lot of the top stars that come through Pittsburgh. And by that, I mean with a bit of an arrogance in that Penguin fans are conditioned to think that if you're a big name, you should be here. And and Kyle Dubas was a big name. Um, and quite frankly, they're used yeah. to having high-profile GMs, you know, Craig Patrick, uh, Jim yep. Rutherford, Ray Shiro. Um, like, they're used yeah. to having GMs that, that are in the mix, so... They, they've loved him almost as much as Toronto seems to be jilted by him. <laughs> Rob, that is a great that is a great way to put it. Uh, always appreciate it when you come aboard. Thanks so much for, for sharing your expertise. Much appreciated, pal. Anytime, anytime, Jeff, and happy holidays to everybody there. Thank you, and to you as well and your family and all of your readers and uh, everyone tuned in right now. Uh, the great Rob Rossi from The Athletic covering the Pittsburgh Penguins. On that, we do... Have to hustle being up against the clock as we are. Uh, thanks to everyone who took part in today's program. You just heard from Rob Rossi a couple of seconds ago from The Athletic. A big thank you to Rob. Brian Boucher uh, before him talking to us about the Philadelphia Flyers who find themselves in second. Sean Reynolds caught us up on the division leaders of the Central, your Winnipeg Jets, and uh, gloss over a very violent weekend around the NHL with Elliot Friedman. Do not forget, uh, tonight there are four games on the go around the NHL. The Maple Leafs are in, or sorry, on Long Island. There you go. Uh, John Tavares looks for point number 1,000. Calgary and Colorado, Detroit and Dallas, Arizona and Buffalo. Back in 22 hours to talk about all the hitting from behind penalties we'll hear tonight.